You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Evening, people. How are you doing? Eight o'clock on a Tuesday um, evening, which means one thing. It's the Sports Therapy Association podcast um, which is actually a live video cast. In case you listen to the podcast, it is recorded live every Tuesday at eight o'clock because we like it live. It's more spontaneous. We can put guests on the spot. We can have live questions. It's just kind of like that's the way we roll. We do it live, same as One Chat Live. In case you're wondering who this voice is, it is Matt Phillips, creator of One Chat Live. So if you do want to join us live, then just go to YouTube, the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel, on a Tuesday at eight o'clock, and and you will see. You can even set a little reminder once it gets posted up there. And you'll be notified when we are live. So anyway, we've reached um, episode 107 now, which is basically 107 weeks since we started every single week. Um, and we're starting a new topic now because it's a new month we're in July. Um, June was all about a focus on business. And thanks again for people who have emailed in and the conversations are still continuing. We had some fantastic guests all looking at the business side of running a clinic um, and very much worth checking out. Um, all those episodes, there's information on how to improve customer experience, there's information um, on how to, the five mistakes, uh, we had Tim Allardyce commenting on the five typical mistakes, which I can just hear ching ching, so one of our guests just sipping back on their chinzano. I'm not going to say whether it's Nick Knight or Dr. McCauley, but one of them is just sipping back there, enjoying the good life got a big multidisciplinary clinic happening and they're just there looking like puff daddy it's beautiful to watch we'll be bringing them up later on anyway but um yeah so check out the focus on business um you can see it on youtube um you can if you want to watch the video you can obviously listen to it on any uh, podcast app let me just bring these up on full screen so you can see them so yeah youtube they're all there all the episodes 107 um, if you do go to our YouTube channel, then be sure to check out the Women in Sports Therapy podcast. There's actually four episodes now. Latest one, uh, Dr. Claire Minchel. Um, WIST, as it's known for short. Amazing podcasts. You really should listen to them, whatever your gender. They're covering all aspects of Women in Sports Therapy uh, with Dr. Fiona Higgs and Deb Stolaroli. So do check them out. Um, if you prefer to listen whilst you're running, for example, then podcast apps work. And you can also go along to the thesta.co.uk because I have added some nice links in there. If you go to the podcast section and you can choose Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, whatever you like, whatever's easiest for you. <clears throat> so July is here and we have a focus on the foot and ankle. Brilliant idea. That's the next six months on the Sports Therapy Podcast sorted. All I'm going to do is work the way up from foot to head. Um, and I'm very excited to bring um, a couple of very experienced therapists as guests. Um, Nick Knight and Dr. Emma Cowley, who know each other. I've got a funny feeling they do know each other and they've met before. And they're going to be joining us very shortly to do an introduction on the foot and the ankle. Um, as always, if you've got any questions, if you're joining us live, then if you fill out the comment, I can bring it up onto the screen. For example, if you're watching the video now, Nikki Mansfield, um, your message is now on the screen. It says, evening all, though I might miss the start of this. But our man Norrie, oh, it's going to be a long one, people sit back. Our man Norrie smashed his quarterfinal with time to spare. Well done. Nice one, which is very nice of him. Congratulations, Nikki. I'm sure you're very proud um, of Norrie. Gary Benson, founder of the Sports Derby Association podcast, is in the house as well, saying, hi, everyone. Hope you were well and looking forward to this chat. Becky Carroll has just gone, Nick! Exclamation mark. He's used to that. Um, spoiler alert. Interesting. Becky knows so much. And then Catherine Reimer is here as well. Um, it's a great place to hang out, people. We've already got a couple of Sports Therapy Association regional reps here as well. So if you are a sports therapist or a sports massage therapist and you want to chat with people in your area, then again, try joining us live, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Bam, there we go. Right, that's a reminder to switch my phone off. We don't need that anymore. So professional. Right, okay, I think without further ado then, we will start a month of focus on the foot. I shall bring up the guests. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Good evening, night. Dr. Nicole. How are you? Good evening. All good. I'm so excited. That's that for an anticlimax. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> We've already kind of discussed the whole thing 
um, um, how it's going to flow so easily. So I'm very excited to have you on here. Thank you so much again for giving up your free time. Um, just this is why people, if you are listening to the podcast, they're lovely podcasts, aren't they? They're free. Don't forget the guests are giving up their time as well. Experts who have dedicated every single inch of their soul to their profession all of their lives. And here they are just giving an hour on a Tuesday night for us to free to help you, to benefit you and your practice. So if you are listening to the podcast, do please just leave a review, leave a rating um, if it's going to be five. And then and that helps our episode appear higher when people do a search. So if someone puts in the foot and ankle, bam, they will be able to listen to the great word of Dr. McCowney and Nick Knight. So please do that now. Maybe pause the podcast and just do it and then come back. Right. So um, thanks again for coming along, you two. Podiatrists. I'm very excited because I know from being a sports or from working my way up from massage therapist to sports therapist that the foot has always been like a, it's the, I, th I think it's the biggest reason to refer something out. It's like, okay, that looks weird. You're walking with a very strange gait. I'm not sure what the hell's going on there. Get out of my office and go to the podiatrist. <laughs> Is it why is the foot such an air of mystery? It does it deserve to have that reputation, or what's the reason? Either of you, I think it's because it's incredibly complex. So it's sort of like caught with the bones of the body in in the lower limb and in the foot, and you're sort of thinking it's one of these sort of masterpieces of engineering. And yet, actually, as podiatrists, we're still learning a hell of a lot about it. And it's one of those things. Well, actually, we spent three years training looking at the foot and the rest of the lower limb and yeah it is very very complex and it surprises me on a daily basis still yeah and i would add to that it's a specialist um part of the anatomy as well it's unique to humans um there's no other part of the body that sits at right angles to the rest of the um, axial and the appendicular skeleton mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh it's got some organized structures that are evolved specifically for bipedalism for standing on two feet and running on two feet as well so a lot of the structures you'll find in other animals but they're called different things and they do different things and so yeah it, it requires an understanding of load bearing and and how those structures work moment by moment during a step and that being very unique to how humans run as well Okay, you've already blown my mind which i knew was going to happen within the first because <laughs> when you said they're specific to humans i was like I'm racking through my brain to as many animals and species I could think of and going, shut about, how come, really? What, what, are, you, what okay. are you referring to specifically with that? Okay, two big ones. Oh, mm. I'll give you three big, easy ones, okay? The okay. first one is our hallux, the big toe. Yeah. In um, other primates, it's like a thumb. It's opposable. Mm. Um, in humans, it's aligned to the other toes. So that is better for, it's in the direction of travel, so it's better for powering forwards. It's better for running rather than grasping. So that's the first difference. The second difference is that we have a big bulbous heel bone. So that is for landing on and for transmitting forces up into the kinetic chain. And the third difference is that we have an arch that sits away from the ground and acts as a leaf spring. And then it, it so it can compress and it, it brings adaptability, but also it has controlled stiffness and that creates a stiff spring that can return energy when you're running so you you compress it and it recoils back and springs you forward it gives you some free energy when you're running that's just three yeah. of the differences that's enough that's brilliant <laughs> and i'm actually feeling really guilty and this is an example of how we focus so much because it's the typical sports massage therapist or sports therapist sitting around the table oh do you know what differentiates humans from the rest of animals except for a few small monkeys i'll give you a clue and we kind of that's our kind of like well, it's amazing because we can open things up and we go to stories about monkeys who can do it and stuff and and you know but never thought about the big toe can't do that and that's just as significant if not more the fact what it can't do i, I don't know what came first the stiff toe or the arch and the windlass mechanism on purpose they came together well but, arguably it i mean it depends when you speak to evolutionary biologists um depends who you speak to and it depends on you know the latest evidence as well but it seems that we didn't come down from trees it seems that we evolved alongside other hominids and and pre-hominids that um that were, some of them were in trees some of them were what we call obligate bipeds that stand up and, and don't crawl and walk on fours some do it habitually so they do a bit of each and some of them are in the trees um as obligate uh, arboreal 
um, locomotives. Sorry. It's going to be brilliant. People, just sit back. If you, Again, pause it, make a cup of tea, because this is just going to be, get your pad out. Get your pad out, Becky, if you haven't already. I can imagine Becky here comes like, she's come 106 times at 107. And even now I can hear she's just run to the kitchen to get her notepad and just going, oh, here we go again. I mean, that's a lovely segue because, <laughs> yeah, in, in, in episode three, yeah, the third week, we are going to be having talking to James Earl and the topic is going to be evolution of the foot, which is one of his passions and his oh, written books and stuff. So that's going to be very exciting. So that's a really nice segue to that, even though I really want it to continue now. We're going to have to wait um, because today, yeah, we're going to, I mean, again, I love that already because it is pointing out most of our audience are sports therapists and sports massage therapists. Do you get the impression, because you've both worked with um, different disciplines, obviously, even though you're podiatrists, do you get the impression that still the information given to a lot of other professions regarding the foot is limited or erroneous? Is there myths and misconceptions out there? Go on, yeah. Nick. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I think there, there definitely is. And even still within the podiatry profession, there's still a lot of stuff that she say haven't kept up with the times i think is a nice way of with, with with putting it and so it's not just outside of podiatry it happens still within but that's the beauty of science though isn't it it's, it's constantly evolving i remember I was, I was looking through some of my notes from a few years ago and then what i said in patients like you might want to phone up and give them a refund and say do you know what? i really was i really that was i really saying that? i'm really really sorry but at the time that was the best I knew, but it's, it's, I think we've all just got to keep our mind open to change and challenge what we perceive to be correct and just accept that we'll learn new things as, as, as we go along. Um, so that's outside of podiatry as well as in within podiatry as well. And I would say coming from a more sort of educational point of view where, you know, I teach physios and OTs and nurses and all sorts of dis different disciplines, um, as well as having worked with them clinically and research with them. Yeah, we all come with our biases and it very much depends on having worked with an individual. So my impression of sports therapists, I've worked with some phenomenal sports therapists and, um, you know, I've also worked with some or come across some that I've wondered if they're even come through the same route. But then I guess you guys have met podiatrists exactly the same, some that have blown your mind and some that you're like, have you even read recently? <laughs> you know, So... I would be really careful about judging um, a profession. Uh, and I speak to myself as I say this because relationships are so important. And, and actually, when you ask a patient what they want, that's often very different as well. So I might be great for one patient, but really not great for another one. And uh, my skill set may resonate really well with one, but not with another. So my definition of good might be on the end of the patient rather than on my judgment, yeah. actually. That's so interesting. And I think that's really useful for particularly sports therapists and sports massage therapists to hear because there is a lot of information which sports therapists are having to kind of they realize they've been taught paid a few grand for and it's being questioned now sometimes quite violently on social media which is the downfall of going online too much but yeah it's it's really healthy hearing from two professionals um as i was gonna say as old as you as experienced as you <laughs> <laughs> who are still having to check what they yeah. who are still having receiving hairlines it's not like... <laughs> I haven't got any old photos of you don't worry it's fine no one will know <laughs> yeah it's really nice to hear that you're giving people permission that it's okay to to change and I'm interested in what you said Nick there because I think that's a fear that some soft tissue therapists listening I've definitely received emails talking about it where they're they worry about going back on what they said to a patient maybe a patient they've seen for a year or something who's coming in regularly and they've got to kind of suddenly do something a little bit different, maybe introduce them something they haven't done before, or a bit more of a chat about the psychosocial factors, whatever it is, or strength training. What tips have you got for getting over that fear of patients going, why are you changing your mind? That's ridiculous. Where are all the money I've paid you for the last six months? Um, because my tip is just just do it. I, I have sometimes things haven't gone to plan, but, and I've ref reflected and reread my notes. And I've looked back and said, do you know what? I wasn't that good that day. So I just say to the patient, no, I'm really sorry that I wasn't, that wasn't me or my A game. I messed up. So now let's try and put it right. And actually patients seem to respond to really well, just having that honesty of, okay, look, he's a human being, make mistakes from time to time, but now he's trying to correct that 
mistake and yeah i've had patients put a complaint in before but then i've said that to them and then they turn around and said i'm going to give you 10 out of 10 because of how you dealt with it and actually now everything is is fine we're all human beings we can't get it right all of the time but i'm always one to sort of own up and when i say look or i turn around and say this is the best of my knowledge and as emma said i may not be the right person for you now but i know someone who is um so i'll refer you over to that i think we do need to try to get over this whole worrying about referring on or saying or admitting something and and just and when i spoke when i speak into um spoken to colleagues that have now gone more the medical legal route a lot of the cases that brought it just patients just comes down to a breakdown in communication so actually these patients if you get that communication right then actually it doesn't tend to end ever end up in litigation or things like patients are just grateful that you're there trying to help trying to do your best and they understand we're human beings um all the time and and again don't be afraid to challenge each each other if every time me and emma fell out over every time we challenged each other we wouldn't be friends <laughs> sort of like it's it's almost we've got colleagues like when we get together and we have a chat so colleagues i reckon sit down and bring the popcorn out because we can sit there and have a, a right old discussion but then have a drink afterwards it yeah it's it's nothing personal it's just trying to learn and be the best we can be yeah absolutely and and you know what matt the neither of of our disciplines is a is a precise science we'd love to think it is we'd love to think we're evidence-based and we've got an answer for everything and like in optometry there's an acute you know refractive index we can work with it's just not the case we're working with people people are messy um we we can't dose what we do you can't dose um an orthosis prescription you can't dose a strengthening or a stretching plan you can try, you can use a FitVP protocol, but the individual and how they respond to that, um, we, we just don't know. We've done some of the science, some of there's some work done at the University of Plymouth um, by a physiotherapist a few years ago, who was trying to look at the dosage, if you like, of stretching in uh, children with spasticity. And to start off with, they were looking at people with it without spasticity. And, and it was like trying to pin a jelly down, you know, you just couldn't really determine what the effect was but what we do generally know is something is better than nothing and that it's a complex intervention so building that that theater that um, therapeutic rapport that therapeutic alliance that trust the sharing of information the targeting of questions to help understand goals and then trying to understand the power of your therapies and the power of your assessment in order to select the right therapy as well that is likely to lead you to the best outcome. But it's really important. I do this with patients um, as far as I as far as I can is to try and determine at the, at the outset what good looks like. So what do we want from this? And, and is that likely to happen? Um, how up for this are you? You realise it's going to be hard work and we'll go from that start point, really. Yeah. As I say to patients, human beings, we are reliably unreliable. Mm. Yeah. But that's what makes all our jobs interesting because we can see... 10 cases of heel pain in a day but everyone is different they even they have the same diagnosis but everyone is still different um frustrating at times but <laughs> it makes it makes your life fun so this this is so uh, it's not first of all it's just lovely seeing back listening to you so please don't stop because you feel you've been talking too long you just keep going we've got another 40 minutes and i'm quite happy just to have you two talking it's great but um we're saying something which i get the feeling well as far as sports let's go to sports massage for example none of this is being taught on courses therapists are still getting turned out with the impression that well i hate saying it but if your shoulder hurts what well, is it uneven to the other one let's get in the same height symmetry is still the guide of test retest and sure enough when you touch something do something to somebody or tell them something you're the the the, the clinical gold standard for a soft tissue therapist is often if you measure them at the end and their pelvis is now level then that's going to cure their back pain you know or their legs are the same length but that's what look at, if you listen to the podcast they're both laughing okay but that is that is and i don't think i'm speaking out of turn here oh but, if only if only life was that simple yeah, that's what i'm thinking that's what it is so my question to you once you stop your giggles is you're involved in education very much. Have you? Do you still see that on courses? Because you mentioned like sometimes podiatrists are still going, thinking that there is a blueprint yes. and you need to walk, you know, move this certain way and neutral subtail <laughs> over this. Is education getting better or is it still stuck 
And I hope so. I hope so. And you know what? I think the loop between clinic and education is improving through social media and, and other forums. But what I would say is I hate seeing the pendulum swing like it does. Things go in and out of fashion, suddenly massages everything. The next minute's nothing. Same with electrotherapies, the same with manual therapy, the same with orthoses, you name it. They all have their moment and it's Empress New Clothes um, in the conversation almost every time. What I would say <laughs> is nearly always the case in life is that there's a middle point. There's a case where perhaps there's a window of opportunity for massage to help create a window of opportunity for a therapeutic effect of another intervention. I rarely find monotherapies work in MSK conditions management. It's normally additional, either consecutive or simultaneous use of therapies together, along with expectations um, talked about, I'm not going to say managed, but certainly set and discussed. Um, and the conversation about pain, I know you, you've, you've uh, no doubt discussed pain. I think you, you've got either one just coming or you've just had one. I saw one advertised the other day. Um, and the, the, the conversation about pain is huge in terms of outcomes as well. So uh, all I would say is, you know, it's great fun, isn't it? We all have a chat. We can all laugh. We can all giggle. I'm not laughing at anyone. I'm laughing at the concepts that come and go because they do it in all the professions. And if only life was that simple <laughs> and it often isn't. <laughs> yeah. Good old structuralism. But I mean, for example, I mean, we're, okay, let's, because this was advertised the anatomy of the foot, so we're going to stay on track here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we have talked about anatomy. We talked about the massive calcaneus and the yeah. unopposable hallux, and it's just great. But we're going to move back a bit to anatomy. So know, how are we going to do that? Let's talk about some movements of the foot or the anatomy of the foot, which if soft tissue therapists understood the anatomy a bit more, it would help them look after their clients so what aspects of anatomy should we talk about i would say that probably starting with understanding anatomy you have to you have to take a um a, a sort of a funnel approach and i would start with the gross anatomy structural anatomy go to Gray's or whoever you know whichever resource you want that helps you learn what's where you know what groups they sit in what joins onto what what innovates what and so on but don't stay there. I mean, that is almost a recipe for disaster by staying at gross anatomy. You have to progress to function. And once you progress to function, it is honestly, it's like the secret. It's like the magic um, in clinic. And I know, Nick, you've got a story about when you when you started looking and, and measuring 3D gate, didn't you? You kind of had your eyes yeah. opened. <laughs> it is. It's because we know that, unfortunately... It's not simple. So we know that actually most structural assessments and sort of a structural anatomy assessment, and then you try and correlate it, that to dynamic function. It just doesn't work. So if you see someone standing and they've got a pronated foot type, it doesn't mean anything really to when that foot is then moving. Um, and yeah, I, I thought I had a good understanding of how human beings moved. Then about six years ago, I got a 3D gate system and actually realized I knew bugger all. Um, and actually, I now say to my patients, they sort of say, oh, you see me doing this. How am I going to run? And I sort of said, I've been looking at 3D data for six years and I still can't find a way to predict what you're going to do. So I've just given up predicting and what it will be, what it will be. And I'm not going to guess because the odds are I'm not going to get it right. So and yeah, and you, you just realize how different people adapt to different things. And okay, I'll go outside of the foot, but you'll you'll change someone's shoes or you'll put orthosis or you'll give them some gate re-education. And some people you'll see big kinematic changes at the hips, in others you won't. And it's not repeatable. You can't turn and say, right, you're gonna do this and this is what we're gonna see. Life would get far too boring, in my opinion, if that did. That did happen. And then it's then sort of speaking about muscles functioning in different ways, depending on what stage of the gait cycle they're, they're at. And it gets really, really interesting. So, yes, learn. As Emma said, you need that baseline of understanding the gross anatomy. So go get your greys or actually the best textbook for anatomy, I feel, is the old McMinn's one. They don't if you can find one. Yeah. And, and that's basically just pro sections of the foot and I, i've got two or three because i'd every time one comes up i'm like yes these are just like gold dust i love these and then even things like actually like 3d4 medical 
Um, mm-hmm. they, they've even got like AR versions. Like you can put a human foot, project it into your living room. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, actually, when I was a student, how great was that? But then actually before the pandemic, about 50,000 years ago, it feels about now, um, me and Emma used to run... Um, Oh, we lost Nick for a while. Oh, he's gone. I'll finish his sentence because I know what he was about to say. I think it's because um, he said we... bugger. I think that was just a uh, YouTube <laughs> yeah, about. He's, yeah. he's just been banned from the internet. <laughs> yeah, um, what was he going to say? He was about to say we, we ran um, a cadaver anatomy course. Mm. And um, so we would uh, get into the Centre for Anatomical Sciences at the University of Southampton Hospital, uh, General Hospital, and do a morning of um, just like revealing all of the intricacies of the foot and ankle um we, we run it for podiatrists and so we, we had a strong um you know engagement on foot and ankle and then we would in the afternoon go off and look at the function and so we would look at models of function and um and uh, you know with with my phd interest in uh, the the influence of time during running on how the foot functions across a race uh, or across a prolonged run um you know we would start to look at um the models of function and, and how that can move you on to the next level of problem solving in a clinic. So not only do you know what is hurting, but you know when it's hurting and why it's hurting and how the mechanical um, scenario, the mechanical environment can be reversed to take the load off that structure and, and then return it back to normal function. Talking of normal function, welcome back, Nick. Thanks for joining us again. <laughs> Having said that, though, your microphone and it's a bit of a noise. I think you should go out and come back in again. Yeah, I'll help him out. There you go. <laughs> uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I've oh, I've got a little I've got this thing about death going on. I would not be very good at a cadaver kind of. Um, I'm just not very good at that. <laughs> but but I would really love to see somebody who's kind of more evidence informed still doing a cadaver workshop and then. Because that could be used. I mean, the pendulum could swing very much easily too far the other way because what you see, first of all, in a cadaver, a dead tissue, we already know mm-hmm. the whole kind of the fuzz speech and Gil Headley and all of that, a lot of that was negated because he was working with a dead body, which didn't help. Yeah. But it must be really interesting to show that and then reflect on it and update it a little bit. Um, do you find that something you manage to do? Like in the afternoon when you're going through function, is there kind of contradictions where you'd expect this to happen? But look. Is that kind of what comes across? Yeah. So when when you start looking at cadaver science, the the troubles that we find are that cadavers are often preserved in chemicals that change the properties of the tissues. So what might be really um, elastic in in a living person becomes quite stiff in a in a uh, preserved cadaver. So the preferable science, if you're going to do cadaver science, is to use um, fresh frozen specimens. Or there is another type of um, uh, of preservation. The name always escapes me. I can never remember what it's called. Um, that um, essentially maintains the the characteristics of the tissues, um, so that it is more lifelike. Should you load the cadaver and move it through, for example, a, a step using a rig, a mechanical rig, mm-hmm. and, and that creates a little bit more of a lifelike um, set of data. But yeah, of course, there is no substitute for it, and. A few years ago, you might have come across um, uh, a group um, from uh, Sweden and Salford and various places um, that all got together and went off to Sweden to stick some bone pins in to find out how the foot really moves. And they anaesthetized, um, used local anaesthetic, anaesthetized the nerves to their feet, drilled cortical bone pins in like madmen. <laughs> they were all men, I hate them. <laughs> and walked up and down a walkway and you know they they had i think 10 feet they were able to to get data on and you know that was fantastic it was groundbreaking and it was novel and some of the best you know uh you know the nearest to life like science you're going to get on real bone movement without it being a, a dead body but of course, they knocked out the nervous system. And that was one of the, the biggest um, criticisms of the study, of course. But, you know, anyone sitting there criticising, I'd love to know how they're going to do better. So yeah. we're always left with proxies. And when you when you start looking at, at movement science, you're you're pretty much left with stuff stuck to the skin. And we all know skin moves. So all I would say is, you know, with finite element modelling, with um, bone pin studies, with regular marked and markerless uh, data, of cadavers or living people they're all helpful they help to build the picture 
and mm. we shouldn't rely really on anything too much um, because none of it uh, really relates to the pathological person anyway and, and every pathological person is different anyway so mm. they're helpful but not the answer but that was really helpful with that paper to really debunk the myth that the myth that doesn't doesn't lock oh it's awesome <laughs> yeah it was it's such a great paper and yeah, I think the reason it had to be done is you'd never get ethical approval for that in the UK, would you? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, good old Sweden. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, you can stick pins in yourself if you want to. Come on over. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah. so that was Lundgren's paper. Yeah. Going back to the anatomy and the, the sort of pro-section days that me and Emma were run, that, I think that links nicely into sort of then the atomical variation is that is even if you go and do a quick google scholar search or pubmed search about lower limb variation there are hundreds of papers where people document different variations within the lower limb so for example um, at at ductal lucis brevis there are some people saying some papers showing that instead of two heads it's actually got three heads um there are when I was in one of the dissection labs, actually the, the medial structure along the medial ankle, sort of Tom, Dick and Harry, actually didn't run in Tom, Dick and Harry. They ran differently. And there are some papers that show that actually... Really? There are some papers that show that flexor digitrum longus and flexor lucis longus actually have many fibrous connections between them. And right. that doesn't happen in everyone. It, doesn't ha- it happens in some people. And then you can then even get in discussion about accessory bones accessory muscles in in the foot how can an accessory navicular affect pain and function and it, it, this is where anatomy is so fun but again anatomy is isn't always a hundred percent reliable because we're all a bit different at times and it, it's, it's great fun but it's uh it's something that you've always got to appreciate and i think learn and try and strive to be better at. and one of the ways that i like is um when we have students to try and help with them surface anatomies, we get um, muscle stimulators and we put it on different parts of the lower limb and just try and say, well, actually, you think you know where something is. Well, let's put a small electrical current through it and see what moves and what doesn't move. Or another great exercise is trying to draw the bones on the of the foot, on the foot. And it sounds really, really simple, but actually it's really, really difficult People don't realise how long the metatarsals are, how big and long, how wide the navicular is, and and then when you then start doing that, you then really get a really fine appreciation for anatomy and how complex it is and how important it is. And obviously, I'm going to be biased, and Emma, we because we're both podiatrists, but I think sort of foot anatomy is most probably one of the most complex regions out there don't ask me about hands because if you ever see me treating a hand something's gone wrong because i can't even name the anatomy in the hand um so but i think yeah i think the foot's incredibly complex i had a radiologist once wish me luck when i said i was going to pick up an ultrasound probe (laughs) 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 because it is every millimeter can make a difference in a foot so yeah yeah It's, it's fascinating um i just wonder whether and again you guys don't see the kind of syllabi that are out there for probably the most the, the top five um, examining boards who are throwing out sports massage therapists and sports therapists. It's, the syllabi is horrible. And if they just tweaked it a little bit and, and just mentioned anatomical variants, just at the beginning, just to sow that seed rather than producing these people who believe that symmetry and pain are correlate perfectly and that's the goal and everyone's the same and it's a shame it's just i don't know there seems to be a lot of um of inability to change examining papers it's probably just cost too much or it's just a massive thing it's just too large scale it depends on as sadly in our profession it's about and we always recommend this when we get people where should i study where should i do level five i've been told i need to level five and it's like just go by the teacher don't go by the examining board because if they're just delivering what the examining paper wanted to do you're going to get a pretty dire you know, you, you'll pass the exam, but you're, you're going to go to clinic and it's, nothing's going to really help. So and you really need problem. something. Yeah. You know, when, when you're designing a, um, believe me, this is my life. Welcome to my life. <laughs> when you're designing um, an exam, you can't base it on what might happen. You have to base it on what's likely to happen because that will be in the textbooks. And that's what's likely to walk through the door in a clinic. There are always the zebras instead of the horses that come in. And there are always the weird and wonderful. And that's where you need your specialist to have that next level of expertise and anatomy knowledge and skills and all of that good stuff. Um, but I would seek to have 
you know, most of a profession with a good baseline, like mm-hmm. rather than trying to run before they can walk, if you'll excuse the pun, I would prefer that everyone knows roughly what's in there and roughly where it goes and what it crosses and what it does. And then from that point, yeah, they can build on it because we have the luxury. We've we've got, you know, people say we just do the foot and ankle until they until they sit with their popcorn and listen to me and Nick talking for a couple of hours, <laughs> and then they realise it's not just a foot at all. But you can see why when when you invest in a a part of the anatomy that is this complex and this specialised, you know, I've been studying anatomy for well, I started my studies in 1992, and I I'm still in the anatomy lab seeing new things now in 2022 so you know 30 years later here i am still seeing things slightly differently because i learn more and i go back and i see more so yeah of course i'm going to spot stuff in a clinic that someone else with with a baseline knowledge won't see and that's fine that's why i'm here but you can't teach experience though can you so no, but also it's that investment, the years of yes, investment exactly. as well. And but it's also like any sort of course, and I say to students that come with us, going through a podiatry degree will get to a point where you are safe. The idea is you, you pass the exam and you are a safe practitioner. But actually, I'll turn around and say it's like driving your car. If you pass your test, you are a safe driver, but you actually really learn to drive after you pass your test. And this is the thing is that actually... Just because you, everyone, and I was the same. When I graduated, I thought, right, that's it. I graduated. I know everything that I need to know. <laughs> and every year that goes on past my graduation, I realise I know less and less and less and less and less. And it is just having that it's that expectation of okay, once you pass something, whether it be level five, six, or seven it doesn't matter you still then that's actually you need to then keep pushing forward you've been given the foundations but now's the time to go and actually hone where you want to go and learn and progress further um, that's what i would say really fantastic very well put excellent i'm just going to bring up Catherine's comment here because it's just lovely and i love love everything Catherine says but Catherine, going back to the uh I have to say cadaver because my wife's from Wigan, so it's a cadaver, it's not a cadaver. That sounds too posh to me now, it's a cadaver. But anyway, yeah, she says, I'll be in the cadaver workshop again at Keele University in October with Mike Rice um, and moving therapy education. Oh. I seem to spend more, oh, it's gone. I seem to spend more time with dead people these days, but I do enjoy it. <laughs> Classic, Catherine. This is the answer back. That's going to be a screenshot, definitely. There's a new, uh, something. I think that'd be nice in your Facebook profile. I see the dead. Yeah, lovely, Catherine. Thanks for sharing. Um, We've got a question here from Nikki, if that's okay. Nikki Mansfield says, was it Nick that, uh, what was it Nick just said about the bone pin study proving that something didn't lock during supination? Please could he repeat, explain. So there was this theory that the midfoot used to, to lock, which then helped push us forward. And that, but we now know from the bone pin study that that doesn't, it doesn't happen. The midfoot doesn't, doesn't lock. And we thought that for years and years and years and years. But then the bone pin study sort of blew our mind and realised, oh, actually, we've been thinking this for the last 20 years. But actually, what we've learned in the last 20 years in one study we just proved was basically inaccurate. So, And, and part was, of that is about terminology, isn't it, Nick? Because yes. we inherited, um, you might have heard of Ryan and Weed, like Rutian biomechanics in, in the foot, um, which is all based around an ideal um, design of a foot, if you like, a rectus foot, straight foot. The, the rear foot's like this, the forefoot's like this, and you know they just wander, wander around on the ground. And if the forefoot is twisted up one way or the other, or or the heel is, that that's going to cause compensations and then pain. So it was a lovely theory, and and we all, um, you know, we all got behind that for a long time because it was all we had. And of course, like all these things, sometimes they get better in spite of what you do, not because of what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't have much cause to question it. Um, but there were obviously the patients that didn't get better with that and also the ones I couldn't explain at all. So, um, yeah, the, the Salford group did a lot of work on this, um, uh, Chris Nestor's group uh, in particular. Um, and, and basically, that yeah, through the bone pin studies and, and other work as well, they've just changed the language. And we don't use language in the same way, like locking and unlocking and forefoot varices and things like that in the same way not functionally in the same way it it is absolutely true that the foot stiffens during the loading phase of walking and running and that happens because there's you know some structures that are across the bottom of the foot and when you 
load down on the foot, it, it creates tension in those structures that span across the bottom. And that helps then to compress the bones together. So they do stiffen up, um, especially the lateral column, and that helps the peroneus longus uh, to, to pull off the cuboid, for example. Um, but it's not by the mechanism that we thought it was, as, as Nick said. And it's just changing that language slightly changes how we perceive movement and what we what we assess for. Yeah, I'm a big fan of ch when you said lock, I was thinking, well, how much is this just a change of the word? Because lock's yeah. pretty definite, isn't it? You know, it's, and, and you could go to subtailor joint, lots of joints where just because someone thinks it's locked, that's it. They think they're incapacitated. I'm never going to move again. This is why I'm in pain. I'm not going to think of any other factors. It's just because the bone's locking. So it's a pretty dodgy word. We've talked about that quite a lot. And some people are going, oh, it's just a word. It's not so important. But I think the first step to understanding variety and stuff is is caring about the words you use because it helps you with so many things and you can go over the top but i think it really helps questioning words and getting a bit geeky about it it doesn't come natural to everybody i think to us three it does but some therapists are like oh what's the difference but it does matter. well i can give yeah. you a really lovely example of where it would make a difference um when you're working with a root paradigm for example which a lot of people still do um and like i say they will be getting people better almost by accident because a lot of the time they do but what what they'll be aiming for if they are subscribed fully to the paradigm of root they'll be aiming to avoid the compensations caused by those rotational deviations that have been identified through you know some manual testing static manual testing and the inference that that will affect movement um which again has been proven not to be the case but regardless they'll be aiming to achieve something through the root model that looks like an outcome that would be you know a good routine outcome but what we know now for example I, I was going to talk about this in fact um when it when it comes to what the work of the intrinsics is so the intrinsic muscles act to stiffen the foot so a, you need a stiff foot you can't push off a wobbly foot it's 28 bones i described to the students i work with like a bag of revels you know, you can't push off a bag of rebels. You need a crunchy bar. <laughs> it needs nice. to be nice and stiff. Um, so you need stuff to, to stiffen it up. The bones are obviously stiff, but there's lots of them. So you've got fascia and ligaments and capsules and muscles in there and tendons as well that help to, to, to achieve that stiffening function. And then, of course, the, the more vertical the foot becomes during a, a push off phase, it stacks like cotton reels and that adds to its geometric stiffness as well. So. You know, what we know is that when you um, when you allow the arch to compress, the foot will stiffen and then create energy that it, elastic energy that it can return uh, on the, the sort of the release of the foot from the floor. And if we start to um, impact that, for example, if we put an orthosis into someone's shoe that supported their arch, um, there are some people that do need arch support. OK, so there are there are some people who have pain in their midfoot. They need to have that arch stopped from moving to avoid pain i'm not anti-arch supports again it's another one that gets demonized um, but as a rule of thumb generally speaking the foot that doesn't have arthritis and does function fairly you know optimally it, it works with that def that deformation that compression of the arch it likes it because then it can use that energy to, to return mm -hmm. so if you put something in there to stop it deforming it can't do its job it can't actually deform and then spring back so what we know is that if you if you reduce um, arch deformation in running by about 10%, uh, you lose about 70% of the energy return. So you might be robbing Peter to pay Paul. And that might be OK. It might be a therapeutic decision that you that you decide to do, but you understand the offset. But don't do it blindly because that person may suddenly find that they're now using a muscle to try and stiffen the foot because they can't use that that nice compression um, mechanism that they were using before and so arguably orthoses actually act as a bit of a gym in that respect because you're forced then to input muscle energy to stiffen the foot where before the the foot would do it more naturally so it's a complex picture and and yeah. shoes arguably do the same if you if you introduce um uh, viscoelastic midsole for example you're introducing another spring into the foot that then it decreases its stiffness and so then the foot has to arguably work harder so it's always a trade-off and that understanding about mechanics and energetics as well as anatomy can be the difference between getting someone better and not getting someone better. Just going back to the anatomy bit, just something completely off track and you said 28 bones in the foot. A lot of people will say 26 and one of my family <laughs> members sort of said, 
the other day, 26 bones in the foot, and I had this nervous twitch. And my two and a half year old popped up, popped up, piped up, and sort of said, "Daddy, what about the sesamoids?" <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, this is I really need to get out more. That two and a half year old, no stone. Forget the sesamoids. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're creating a monster. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> sorry. Scary. Completely. Two, I'll get her on my course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two years old sesamoids. Brilliant. So, that's um. Uh, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And it's, oh, again, you explain it in a way, and this is where therapists need to be educators and not just learn how to do things with their hands. They need to be able to explain these things. Because you, students, I mean, that's your profession. That's what you do, obviously. It's where, where you are, where you are. But therapists need to be able to explain these things in a way that the, 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 the client or patient will understand as well and start doing what you ask them to do at home and they'll get it, won't they? And mm-hmm. stop depending on other ideas they've got. But And you yeah, talk um, about that, and, and that's... People sort of say to me, okay, why do you use 3D gait analysis in clinic? Because there are still so many variables. I can't measure muscle forces with it. And we know that kinematics, the changes of angles, doesn't always correlate to pain or function. But actually, for me, when speaking to patients, the biggest use of actually using the 3D gait in clinic is actually an educational tool to patients to help them understand what's going on, why we try and do the treatment modality X, Y, and Z. And you are educating that that patient. And I, I completely agree with you that, yes, we get educated while we're training, but then we also need to be able to then educate our, our patient and then also demedicalize it and put it in a language that is sort of get rid of the medical jargon, just nice and simple for the patient's diagrams and, and pictures and, and what, hence why in, in our you'll see i'm in my home office at the moment and in the in my corner there is a whiteboard and in all our clinic rooms there are whiteboards because that's what we use to help break down stuff for for patients and yeah it is that education bit is so 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 important i because i have a big belief if you don't do that you don't get what i call the emotional buy-in from clinics patients if you don't get that emotional buy-in they're never going to commit to a treatment plan you don't get the commitment you're not going to get the results um, so, but then that all comes down to, as Emma said at the beginning, that initial consultation, that's your window. You've got that one chance to sort of do it right. So that's where that whole initial consultation is so, so important. And, and people often will ask me and Emma about the, what's the perfect foot examination look like? And I'm like, it, it doesn't, but actually if you come to see either of us for an initial consultation and say it's 45 minutes long. I can guarantee a good 35 minutes is actually having a chat. Actually, the hands-on having a wiggle with a foot is most probably five, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes you don't even need that, but the patient likes that. And I think this is where actually the pandemic has been helpful because especially musculoskeletal therapy, virtual video consultations, you can't do your hands-on bit. So you have to really hone in on your history taking and your communication skills and and whatnot. So much there, Nick. And, Sorry. and yourself, Emma. No, it's amazing. I'm just thinking, guys, you're going to have to watch this back and pause it because there's just so much information coming out there, which is so relevant. Um, I was going to pick up on oh, so many things. Now you've thrown it out of my head. But I think I was just thinking as you were talking that, that one of the things that soft tissue therapists are often scared of is, yeah, you need to tweak a few things. Yeah, you need to understand maybe the psychosocial factors. and make But that doesn't mean you have to stop doing the traditional static assessment you did before because that's a wonderful opportunity whilst you are checking whether you can fit two fingers under one medial arch and the other okay so you're not going to conclude that's why your pain is but whilst you're doing that the patient's buying in they like it they feel looked after and you're maybe looking at their reaction by something you're saying and not necessarily what their medial arch is doing so it always seems to be the message from guys like yourselves is you don't have to throw everything out you're going to tweak it a little bit keep doing what you do the skills you've got are fantastic. You haven't wasted any money at all. Well, it depends who you study with, but a lot of it is still very relevant because you're going to keep doing it. It's just what you do with the information and what you're kind of focusing on when you've got it. I think that the problem is that, that we subscribe to pets. We, we have pet therapies, pet tests, hmm. pet workflows. We get into ruts and we like habits. They get us through the, through our busy day in the clinic as well. So I don't blame people for it. I've been very guilty of it myself. Um. But I would always come back to what is the question you're asking and how are you going to answer that question? And if you want to know whether navicular is X millimetres away from the ground when standing, then measure it standing. 
If you want to work out how much it drops during running, get a tool that will measure it running. Mm. Because we know that there are some, there are some tests. So um, navicular height is actually one of them that will predict with some level of accuracy and reliability, um, the lowest point of the navicular in running, in, in, in running gait. But the foot posture index is neither a use nor ornament when it comes to that. So it all comes down to the question you're asking and the sensitivity, the reliability, the sensitivity, specificity of the test. So a little bit of science in there to understand when a test is going to tell you the truth or going to tell you a lie. And that will come down to the complexity of the test, whether it's um, whether it's being whether it's able to measure the thing inside or a proxy for the thing inside. I know it's getting a little bit sciencey and I, I don't want to get too much into that, but this is the reason why. I find working with with clinicians, you know, coming from that zero point right the way through to advanced practice, that the awakening that happens somewhere along the, along the way is that they begin to take control and command of their tools. Mm -hmm. And that means understanding what it is they're asking and what it is they're using to answer that question. And suddenly you realize you're using a whole load of crocs for, for um, tests. But that said, one test can be really great at answering one question, but really rubbish at answering another. So you need to go back to the literature and ask yourself what it was designed for. And are you still using it for that? It almost feels like we need to get on like, would I lie to you into a panel about it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea, actually. I can think of a few other people to buy along. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Becky Carroll here. Becky, I mean, we've, we've kind of mentioned, we haven't said the word yet because it seems like no one wants to say it, but overpronation. Actually, Nick's had a pronated foot. Um, but yeah, this is something, I mean, it's a word which I think has been demonized, but again, it opens the door to, well, I mean, Nick, I'm sure it's the same for you. Like whoever was working with Gate 10 years ago, that was the way you suggested shoes wasn't it you'd look at the subtalar joints see if they were neutral or not when you stopped the camera and used your eyes or maybe a little measurement and now that's all gone out the window kind of thing really what it has in terms of using that for gain analysis but it's still a really nice way of gently showing some somebody how something does change becky here has asked like overpronation let's bring it up on the screen becky great question by the way becky overpronation it seems to be wrongly demonized by many even still despite current research However, when is overpronation deemed an issue in podiatry? I suppose first you've got to define overpronation. So firstly, I want, I, when we talk about changing the language I use in clinic, when I first graduated, I used to keep, and I still do, is keep a log of interesting patients and then write down, obviously take out all the personal identifiable data and, what, and create a book on writing interesting cases and i was looking back on that about a year ago and there was times that i put the diagnosis as over pronation and if i'd done it's that fine. now I'd, 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 I, I would yeah. it's a safe space nick you're fine yeah i know it's fine. Um, that's the best you had at the time yeah, why not exactly. that's the best i yeah i, I knew and it's the issue i have with with the term is is that we don't know what normal is so if something's we don't know what the normative values are how can you over or under use something and it does always a lot of the time get a lot of the blame when it comes to injuries like people see they see a flat foot and they say oh this is an over overpronated foot you need to get foot orthoses because otherwise you are going to get problems x y and z there are some some of the best marathon runners over the last 30 years have feet as flat as a pancake actually can still run a sub two hour 10 marathon and you, you no one's going to change those because you'd be you'd be silly to do that i think it comes back into on trying to link it and understand is it related to the pathology that they're presenting with or not so just because you see a foot that is flat but they may be presenting with something that's got actually no correlation to a flat foot. So you're like, you've got a flat foot, so you've got a flat foot, but it's not actually related to why you're, you're coming in. So it goes back to that history and examination and going back, is it relevant to that, to that problem? So when is it an issue? To me, it's a foot pronation and is only issue when I think it could be aggravating someone. So if someone comes in with a tibialis posterior tendon dysfunction, and you're watching them walk and you think, well, this foot looks like it could be 
releasing a, a high velocity so very quickly. Well, actually, that could be a contributing factor towards why it's aggravating symptoms. We're not saying it's caused the symptoms, but we're saying it may not be helping. So it's going back to actually relating it back to that to that patient. And it, it's we can't determine what is over, what is under. And um, Ian Griffiths, I think, is a guest next week next week yeah um, actually, Damn, i was gonna i was gonna save that for a little bombshell at the end but that's oh, fine sorry that's right don't worry next okay sorry <laughs> um, we now know the next week's ian and we know the week after's james so yeah, yeah. Keep going. there we go <gasps> I, so i don't know any others so i can't spoil any others um he always used to do a nice diagram about using a lift for example i think at the starting position so you say if a really pronated foot type is a a, a plus three on that lift position but actually, if you started in plus two and you ended up in plus three, you've only moved one level. But actually, if you start on minus three and you ended up on zero, so what looks like to be a neutral foot type in inverted commas, as it were, you, your foot's actually moved more. But people have assumed the overpronated foot type is the first one, but even it's moved less. So I think you need to look at the bigger picture. You need to look at also the volume of motion from start to finish. But then also going back to is it actually relevant to that problem someone's coming in with i mean honestly this is one that if you put, put a hand grenade in a bunch of podiatrists you know this is this yeah. is going to set us off something chronic <laughs> so to add to nick's um answer there which i totally agree with in terms of you know is it a problem that is the very first question but then i would say what is the problem what what even is pronation anyway and if we're talking about heel eversion, then fine, we'd, let's talk about heel eversion. Let's not call it pronation. Pronation arguably is a triaxial movement, um, a multi-segmental triaxial movement in weight-bearing response of the foot. Well, gosh, who wants to talk let's about that? Let's call it that. that. <laughs> let's call it that. It's so it rolls easy. off the tongue nicely, the tongue. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But actually what we, what we see is, you know, planal dominance in people. So some people will pronate just mostly in the sagittal plane. Their arch just drops. Other people do a lot of um, uh, frontal plane, so rotation, and other people sag in the middle to kind of sag their foot inwards in the transverse plane. So it, it, there really is no way of capturing what you mean when you're talking about pronation unless you define it. So that's the first thing. What is it? And secondly, is it too much? So are we working within an envelope of tolerance for that individual or not? It's not about, it's about a shape unless it's changed. If it's changed recently, and especially unilaterally, it's a problem. Mm. So monitoring um, foot shape change in one of those directions, be it collapse, sag or rotation, I would definitely send that off for, for some sort of um, deeper investigation. And I, of course, if it's painful, exactly as Nick said. And we have got a, a question about pain. I don't know if we've got time yeah, to Yeah, bring it up definitely because it will bring Claire in nicely. It links in nicely, doesn't it? Claire Walker, mm. if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but Claire Walker's comments because she's joined us live. Claire says, I'm really interested in the pain science of the foot briefly mentioned. Okay, well, I will just quickly dip in on that one because um, I was just having a think as I was reading it. One of the things I would say to, to podiatry students and podiatrists on CPD days is work out if it's mechanical pain. If it's mechanical pain, like bag them, they're yours. That's the one that podiatry can do because we, we work with mechanical therapies a lot. Mm. If it's psychosomatic pain, if it's uh, complex pain, if it's um, you know organic pain that is something to do with the dysfunction of the neurological system itself, you're probably not going to get very far with a podiatry intervention. And I, I wouldn't wish to step on the toes of, of sports therapists to understand exactly what it is that you are able to influence. But in terms of my own profession, I would say that, you know, we often see multiple components of pain as well. So some of it will be inflammatory, some of it will be mechanical. Um, and when you just literally change the stresses and strains, I can reduce their pain down to zero sometimes, you know, if we're going to use numbers. Um but if it's inflammatory, then I know to expect a, a different um, response um, uh, over time and it'll possibly need a systemic um, approach as well. Neurological pain, again, very different. We're, so it's all about understanding where the pain is coming from. What is the type of the pain? Is it multiple types of pain as well combined? And if it takes ages to get there, it's probably going to take ages to go away unless it's mechanical. Again, so much there. I think that all then comes back to the knowing when to refer on. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, does yeah. It, there'll, there'll be stuff that present to us as podiatrists in the clinic <laughs> that will then turn around and say, no, you need to go to rheumatology uh, or yeah. some, or we need to refer you to the pain team or um, one of our, our graduate sports rehabilitators. He has done some extra training in sort of biopsychosocial pain management approaches and speaking to people about the science behind pain. So we'll turn around and say, look, mm-hmm. In the clinic, I'm not the person, but actually another one of our team members is better suited to try and help you because that's where his skills lie, not my skills. So it's trying to work, as Emma says, that source of, of pain. And then also, Becky, yeah, don't worry about the um, hand grenade at all. Um, <laughs> it's, it, well, we could speak most of another hour and a half on that um, on that subject. So. I know, that's why I say Becky, I loved your grenade. End. Don't apologise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Becky, yeah, fantastic. Any Becky grenades, very welcome on the show. We are reaching, we have reached nine o'clock actually. So it's, um, yeah, we could go on for, for ages, but I'm, um, I'm really thankful to you guys. Just, I don't want to forget, cause we talked about this a bit before, Nick, it sounds very exciting what you've got going in in clinic. You've got a, well, covering exactly that assessment, going through the assessment. You've got 12 people. Is it face-to-face in the clinic? Yeah. So we haven't launched it yet. So this is, I'm launching it. Good. I'm surprised so, now so, as well. Fantastic. So yeah, so it's sort of, um, well, we're equal on the surprises now. Um, we are planning to launch a CPD day, which is going to be held in our clinic in Romsey for 12 people. And it is going to be about telling the patient's story. And it's going through about a musculoskeletal assessment, but it's not the conventional of, okay, how do you assess a joint? How does a joint move? It's more about going through about communicating with the patient, understanding why they're coming, see us, the intervention, and then... The intervention was going to be about then speaking about the rehabilitation process and taking people through that because there'll be different barriers to people where they have access to gyms, previous experiences, you name it. And then in the final bit is then talking about, okay, what happens next? How do you follow that patient up? How do you then try and set them up to succeed in the future? Because as a private clinic, we we aim to discharge every patient we see to a point where We'll then even monitor our patients six, 12 and 18 months down the line to check that they're doing okay. And a lot of the time we'll find our patients are actually doubling the amount of sport and exercise that they are doing 18 months down the line. So we're at the point where you're like, thanks guys at NK Active. Yeah, we don't need you anymore. I'm off. And that's what we, what we want. So it's now saying, okay, we decided to put a course together to speak through how we do that journey with a focus on rehab. Sounds great. I mean, based on what we've heard, for, uh, knowing that you guys are very much on the same page, but willing to kind of chew stuff over and disagree and have fun doing so, it's, it sounds like it's going to be an amazing course. But again, it's kind of like to to get the most from that, it's kind of important, like we said, that you've gone through the fundamental anatomy, that you've gone through maybe a few things which are gross generalizations and painted black and white. Because that's how we learn, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You couldn't have a student who starts off with, well, it could be this, but sometimes it's this. No one would be able to learn that way. You have to learn black and white and then kind of open it up a little bit, yeah. don't you? So yeah. sounds brilliant. Really yeah, there'll be lots it. of pre-reading that, but if you don't do the pre-reading, the day won't make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Um, as as created by your two-year-old, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> steady, brilliant. And Emma, what have you got coming up? Because you're heavily involved in education in Southampton. What's yes. exciting happening there? Well, I, I was just sharing with you, Matt, just before we kicked off about um, yeah the people I work with at, at Southampton. Yes, we're a motley crew of podiatrists, but also other people as well. So I work with um, biomechanists and sports scientists uh, and ex-sport therapists as well, um, who've gone on into a research uh, pathway, either directly into sort of a more biomechanics-based research portfolio or gone on to study podiatry or physiotherapy or occupational therapy. Um, to sort of uh, join a, a, I guess, a, a more, I don't know, a, a population that is perhaps a bit more pathological. I should imagine you guys work more with healthy people, keeping them at that end of, of health and wellness and performance. And we perhaps work with a little bit more of the pathological end. But, you know, rowers get diabetes and um, runners get rheumatoid arthritis and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, if anybody's interested in combining and dual training or um, seeking out a research career or something i'd be really open to a chat about that fantastic and the best are you quite active on social media people want to follow your thoughts is there a particular uh, yeah by all means <laughs> i'm <laughs> emma cowley phd okay on a, any particular platform or 
Oh, awesome. on all of them. All of them. Uh, the only one I'm not not really doing at the moment is TikTok. I haven't I haven't got the dance. I haven't got the moves. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're working on it. I'm sure that's fantastic. Yeah, and Nick, you're NK active in most places. Yeah, NK active clinic on most places, and then also NK Sports Pod on Twitter. But yes, yeah, we are on. Well, I should say we're on TikTok. We have a TikTok account, but I don't manage it. So it's uh, <laughs> and there's no, there's nothing of me dancing. Sorry. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> Cast that a bit now, but there would have been one day. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, guys, it's been really interesting. There really is so much information there to pick apart. So I'm hoping that um, if people do have questions and listen to it again, then the joy of YouTube is it kind of sticks around more, doesn't get disappear in Facebook. So this will always be here in YouTube. Now it will come up in Google search results, and the more of you who leave comments and ask questions to come back, then the more it will appear in search results. So do use this now. If you've got any questions about um, the foot and ankle. Um, then stick them in the comments and I'll will um, forward them to Nick and Emma. And um, who knows, you might even get one to come and give you a result in person, a little reply on YouTube. So keep it going. Um, I'm going to sign these people out now. If you guys can just stick around for two minutes more so I can thank you personally. So don't click any buttons or anything yet. So everyone in the live lounge, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for some great questions. And thanks for the hand grenades, Becky. We will be back next week. And it gives me great pleasure to announce now, because you don't know, um, that we have got the fantastic Ian Griffiths in person, um, along with Maddie Tate, who together are going to be, I'm looking forward to this. We were trying to think of something where sports, particularly sports therapists and sports massage therapists will, ears will pick up. And the episode is going to be called plantar fasciitis, dot, 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 or is it? look at that for a hook isn't that great so yeah we're going to be looking at the relationship of the foot and ankle with relation to plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy if you want to kind of like use that term um so it's going to be a whole hour on that with again two um hugely great educators and people in the game so looking forward to that just come along to youtube on tuesday same time eight o'clock and that's where we'll be doing it but for now um on behalf of nick knight and dr mccowley who i thank once again for giving up the time um Thanks for joining us and uh, yeah, take care of each other. We'll see you next week, hopefully. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.